With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Hello, everybody. It's your block bashing bruiser, Holden McNeely. And it is I, your uh, eight bit wizard, Jake Young. (laughs) Only eight. God fucking damn you if you want to hold more than eight values. If you want more than an 8-bit video game out of an episode, you need to look for a different episode. We will only be discussing an 8-bit video game (laughs) and the 8-bit video games that led to that 8-bit video game. Ladies and gentlemen, it is our episode on Super Mario Bros. And I want to not get this- And a one, and two, and a one, two, three, four. All right, either way. All right, we know this. I love this video game. It has a warm place in my heart. And by the way, not to get confused, this is not an episode on the character Mario. This is an episode about the video game Super Mario Bros. Because originally I said, Jake, we've not done Mario yet. You might as well uh, hire someone to assassinate me. The Legend of Zelda franchise recap, which is in the archives, uh, is one of our uh, most popular episodes ever. And uh, it's, you know, we, we got to give it to, we got to do the same for Mario. We'll just blow through Mario. <laughs> and within like five minutes of researching the first game, yeah. I was already like, we can't. Yeah, I feel like, um, and I, I think even at this point, we will eventually go back and do just an episode on the original Le- Legend of Zelda, just an episode on Ocarina of Time, and uh, uh, just an episode on Link to the Past. I mean, those games... Um, no Link's crossbow training, the most wide-selling Legend of Zelda game of all time. We'll do... A, I'll down to do an episode on bad Wii shovelware. <laughs> <laughs> if that's where you want to take this thing. But either way, that is t- a decade from now. We'll do an episode on Wii shovelware because we have too many... Well, I think now we're realizing man, we can really dig deeper with these episodes and and these subjects and really not feel like we need to cover, I don't know, like an entire giant series of a thing. Um, Thank you, uh, patrons who donated for uh, upcoming (laughs) Lord of the Rings episodes, but we'll get to that. Uh, (laughs) But um, uh, yes, but uh, I have to say, in terms of Super Mario Bros, uh, this game... 
I remember when the Nintendo came out, I have vague memories of like getting so excited to play, you know, Duck Hunt and Super Mario Bros. Um, they were pack-ins, right? They were pack-ins with the Nintendo. Yeah, they were what they were in the same cart. You had right? to choose in the beginning. Yeah, you choose which one. And just having played the, uh, that opening level a million billion times, having um, just gone back later in life using save states to like finally actually beat it mm-hmm. on like a ROM. Uh, and just just the feel of it, the music, obviously, the the look of it. I mean, and and we'll get into why this game because it wasn't the first platformer ever invented. So why this game stood out among the pack and became the platformer uh, to set the score for all platformers in the future. Um, and it's it's really an amazing. Also, it wraps in some really interesting stuff about the origins of Nintendo, the origins of uh, the character Mario and the characters surrounding Mario, the anime and manga and uh, uh, Western influences as well that came into play. The food that came into play when it came to I love it. it's just like Dragon Ball. Yeah. It's all food stuff. It is just like it's it's all stuff that like I never even as a video game fan, I never really bothered to go back and check on now that like these people have given hundreds of interviews and even uh you know it's a little bit more difficult for Japanese uh game devs because uh, you know the company culture makes it so that it's not like people are running around just talking about all the cool shit they did. It's like a little more subdued, but thanks to a lot of resources that are now available, uh, such as uh, Nathan Altice's uh, I Am Error and the Iwata Asks series, which was yes. instrumental in this. And honestly, uh, it just made me like almost shed a tear for <laughs> Satoru Iwata all over again yeah. because these resources that he ended up doing. It's just a fun little side website thing for Nintendo has become an invaluable resource for a lot of these video game episodes. Uh, also, shout outs to Summoning Salt as we will be getting into the world record progression of Super Mario Bros and his amazing YouTube videos about world record progressions. Everyone, everyone go check out Summoning Salt. You will lose a day of uh, at the office <laughs> to it. It is just endlessly fascinating the different uh, tales of uh, attempts at world records that have been going on for years and years now. But let's begin all the way back in 1889 when Nintendo started. Oh, yeah. I'm going to talk a little bit about the beginning of Nintendo. We'll definitely breeze through we, this a little bit. I feel we had to have covered the Hanafuda days. We have, but I don't know. At, at the same time, people are always like, oh, you always say listen to old episodes. Ugh, why don't you just say it? It's you know? one person that we that still gave us a good review. <laughs> and it's still like a thorn in my fucking neck. <laughs> there were caves behind the <laughs> oh, house. My God. I'm just throwing it out there. There were several caves, and the founder of Nintendo, um, Fusajiro Yamauchi, discovered a deck of cards in one of those caves and decided to found a company, a playing card company, under the name Nintendo Kopai. And uh, specifically, he made Hanafuda cards, which translates into flower cards. They're very beautiful looking. And they were handcrafted on mulberry tree bark. The cards became popular once the Yakuza started using them in their gambling dens. So I love that everything has to like end up connected to the yakuza if it's like a successful thing coming out of the japan even mario yeah oh yeah even mario has blood on his gloved hands 
Um, so there you go. Nintendo still sells the cards, including a Mario-themed set in Japan. I would love to get my hands on a copy of uh, that deck of cards. That'd be awesome. Um, sh- uh, just go ahead and throw it out there. If anybody wants to send me that, uh, you can send it to the Last Podcast Network. P.O. Box. The word Nintendo can be translated, actually, as leave luck to heaven, or alternately, the temple of free Hanafuda. So this both relates back to um, Hanafuda cards. Uh, they would later... Um, after the cards, they, they realized the cards weren't really, um, gonna, like, last forever as, like, a super successful thing. Um, it's kind of funny. They went to America, and they found, like, the main playing card company was in this really shitty office, and it convinced them that, like, oh, we need to find something other than playing cards to make us a lot of money, because these guys are supposed to be the top dogs, and their office sucks, which I think is hilarious. Um, so anyways, they went, they did a bunch of shit. They did, uh, a taxi company, a love hotel chain, uh, t- a TV network an instant rice, all of these things, they all failed. And then they got into toys with the ultra hand, uh, uh, which was that hand extender toy that I had one of, uh, the love tester and light gun games. Now these light gun games, they led into light gun machines, leading them into video games. And in 1977, Nintendo began to produce its own hardware with the color. TV, game, home, video consoles. Essentially, these were Pong Pong machines. Yeah, the color TV wasn't uh, games weren't as popular. Like the uh, the kind of it was well trodden territory. The Pong machine kind of boom had already missed them by a couple of uh, by a little bit. And the light gun things that they were trying to do also like uh, their idea. The big thing that they were into was uh, converting failing bowling alleys into light gun shooting galleries. And uh, then just a bunch of shit happened in the economy between the oil crisis of the 70s and the Japanese yen tanking against the dollar that completely fucked up their plans. Mm. Um, They had Nintendo blocks, which were like these Lego like not Lego like they were Legos they were compatible there was a blatant copyright infringement uh their one like caveat was that their pieces were like kind of circular they were round instead of squared so maybe don't sue them but Lego ended up suing them anyway um oh and they were making arcade machines but the arcade machines weren't really like big hits yeah. Uh, uh, the famous one is uh, Radar. They, they made like a, 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 a Othello machine that didn't really do anything. And they made like some bad Space Invaders clones that didn't mm. do anything. Uh, most importantly, uh, Radar Scope. Ah. Uh, which was a pretty neat Space Invader um, clone. It had like a skewed optical effect. So it looked like the ships were coming towards you instead of on a straight 2D plane. Um, but uh, what uh, uh, Nintendo didn't realize as they sent thousands of machines to America was that uh, Space Invaders wasn't really that popular in America. Huh. It was a like it was a huge really? huge deal in Japan. It was a uh, full on like you know it was the Fortnite of Japan. Ha! Uh, but Don't in a, say it was the Skyrim of Japan. No, it was it was a big dumb money maker ah. for a simple game for babies. <laughs> um, I love it. I love it so much. I bought a clown costume. <laughs> oh, um, Jesus. Anyway, the radar scope machines, uh, to cut their losses, they uh, hired a, they they didn't hire, they uh, tasked uh, Shigeru Miyamoto. Shigeru Miyamoto, who started out as a monster, lived in a cave behind his own house. This is that's very <laughs> wrong. He had long fingernails. They used to call him the Grindle of Nintendo. He had long fingernails, and um, uh, he was always covered in slime, and um, he he didn't like the light. He hated the light. 
They tasked Shigeru Miyamoto to create a conversion kit that would change the radar scope cabinets into a different game. Really? Um, and that uh, game was Donkey Kong. Yes, and before that even, when he first got hired, the reason why I brought up the Color TV Game Home video console, the first thing he did was design casing for these consoles. It does have a cool case. It does have a very groovy, colorful case. It's got a cool look. Look it up on uh, Google Image Search. It it looks kind of neat, but yes. um, This leads towards uh, 1970, uh, not 1975, 1981's Donkey Kong, which uh, Miyamoto designs. Let's talk a little bit about Donkey Kong because this is where we're going to get our character, the, the beginnings, mm-hmm. the, the the seeds of Mario. Um, so originally, I love this fact. I did not know this about Donkey Kong. Uh, Miyamoto wanted to use Popeye Pluto in olive oil, mm-hmm. but they couldn't get the Popeye license. So he created the Donkey Kong Carpenter Girlfriend Love Triangle as a replacement. So video games would have been completely different. Um, if they, I think, if they had gotten that license, they tried to get that license. Donkey Kong would be a Popeye game. I mean, they did end up making a Popeye game for the Famicom and way Nintendo. Late, yeah, 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 later, but that's later. Way later. But that was after their success. So, um, he chose an ape to replace Bluto as it was, quote unquote, nothing too evil or repulsive. And also has said Beauty and the Beast and, of course, the original King Kong were influences. Now, the, the every, it, it's, it's still hilarious to talk about the fact that. It's a monkey, and it's Donkey Kong, but Donkey is, it's a lost in translation thing, and a lot of, uh, there's a lot of weird translation things mm-hmm. happening in, in all through all of this tale of Mario Bros. There's yeah. just so many weird translation differences. Um, you mentioned the book, I Am Error, that the, the title of which is based on, you know, a bizarre um, joke that does not translate into English um, yeah. about being like a bug or uh, uh, an issue in the game. Um, but Donkey, in Miyamoto's mind, was a wor- an American word for stubborn. Stubborn as a mule. Stubborn as a mule. And Kong, of course... For a, or an ass, you know, you're yeah, being a jackass. You're being a jackass, and Kong to stand for the word uh, the word ape in in America as well. So that's where you get Donkey Kong. Um, the olive oil character was originally known as Lady, mm-hmm. and then later Pauline, which I love. They went with Pauline, uh, just such a bizarre. But maybe it was more of a normal word back then. But uh, just such a weird. Uh, Southern. Anyways, um, so uh, and Ma- Mario wasn't Mario uh, in a lot of in the Iwata asks interviews. Yeah, uh, Mr. Video. He was Mr. Video or Osun, which is like uh, just a generic word for middle-aged guy, just <laughs> like schmuck, basically. And then referred to as Jump Man in the English instructions. And uh, so uh, yeah, it, it's it's it was kind of all over the place. It was so weird that you know of all the characters, like he would he would just go unnamed for so long. Uh, uh, I, I, Miyamoto even asserts that if he he had actually been named Mr. Video, like there would not be it would not be the same franchise today. He wanted to call him Mr. Video because he would uh, pl- had planned to have him appear in like all of his video games. Essentially, I mean, for a while he did. Mm-hmm. And um, originally, uh, Mario was unable to jump. Uh, but they added a jump, according to my Miyamoto, because what would you do if you had a barrel rolling towards you? And I think I bring this story up mainly just to say so many of the choices made around Super Mario Brothers, as random as Super Mario Brothers can seem, looking at it from the outset with these mushrooms and these Goombas and the the pipes and the the uh, Bowser, like all of it seems so all over the place. So many of these design choices came out of necessity. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that that's such a fascinating thing for Super Mario Bros. Is is uh, it really came out of having restrictions? And I do believe that the creative process is actually strengthened by restrictions. Oh, absolutely. There's nothing more uh, crippling than a blank page. Yes. And all of a sudden, you like add some boxes, you add some limits, you add some prompts, and your creativity just explodes immediately. So I think it's th- this is really to me like the thesis of of today's episode, in my opinion, is like great work can come out of great restrictions. Absolutely. Um, so anyways, uh, uh, we of course now get to the part where Mario does get named. Now, according to legend, I think a lot of people have heard this story, by the way, so bear with us if you've heard this story. <laughs> if you haven't, you're going to be like, oh, wow, what a cool story. That was Bear With Us by <laughs> Jerry Japes and the Donkey Squad. Now it's time for Mr. Big Mouth's Hour. <laughs> wee-o, wee-o, wee-o. Oh, people in different cultures are different. Can we do that for a bonus episode? Just the worst morning zoo crew? <laughs> of just for a Okay, good. I feel like every podcast team has their version of a terrible morning zoo that they like to do every now and again. You know what I mean? And we've got to do ours. Um, where we act, but but talking about anime and and video games and stuff. Uh, that's the difference. You've been listening to Chunky and the Nork. <laughs> um, okay, so the story. Do you want to tell it to him? I mean, to tell Mario Sagale. You tell this story. He is the landlord. He was, at the time, the landlord of Nintendo of America's warehouse and one day he storms in to the office and um up to the president at the time Minoru uh, Arakawa now this is the president of Nintendo of America demanding back the rent which led to a heated argument where he essentially berates this president and just embarrasses this president in front of all these workers who were loving it and so after the whole experience they all decide the employees decide to name the character in his honor because he was just so memorable and I, I think it was also because they love seeing the the big boss get the piss taken out of him. So they wanted to, like, give him uh, the, the his due. Uh, Sigale, um, he came from two first-generation Italian immigrants. And he was a real estate developer in Seattle. Um, of course, Nintendo of America, based out of Seattle. If you want a job at Nintendo, you might want to move to Seattle. Uh, he told the Seattle Times in an interview in 1993, you might say, I'm still waiting for my royalty checks. Uh, <laughs> maybe a little bit bummed out that he didn't somehow legally get some kind of situation there. He passed away actually very recently. Very Probably a lot of people. This year, I believe. That's why I bet a lot of people have heard this story just mm-hmm. because it was in the news recently. On October 27, 2018, at the age of 84, he passed away surrounded by family and friends. Um, uh, so, yeah, um, that pretty much sums up my Donkey Kong uh, and the birth of Mario. And before I go into Mario Bros, I do have... A lovely quote from Miyamoto that I think sums up also You've a been lot of weirded weirding out Japanese name vowels for throughout the episode. Miyamoto, Pr- Miyamoto, President Yamauchi. It's just just okay. correct me on everything. Right. I'm fucking awful at it. I'm so terrified of going to Japan. I'm just gonna uh, uh, accidentally insult everybody um, with the way I t- uh, pronounce things. He says, Miyamoto says. When we make our games, we try to make things that are not focused on one market or one particular culture or one particular people. And where there are some difficulties in that, I really think it does free us up in a different way to just make what we want and hope that universal appeal will branch across all 
cultures. Um, and of course, Nintendo of America, very strict anti-religious uh, policy in terms of stuff in their games, which is hilarious because of, uh, what's the name of that game? Devil World, which we'll talk yeah. about just a little bit. I bet Devil World actually was a, a lesson learned for Miyamoto about how, oh, I, I probably lost out on a lot of money uh, <laughs> or the company lost out on a lot of money because I, try, I decided to cover this game in crosses and <laughs> demons and stuff. Um, so anyways, let's talk about Mario Bros. Well, first. It, it's it's interesting because like uh, one thing that doing research for this show uh, absolutely like kind of brought into clear focus is being an American Nintendo fan in early childhood meant that we were basically living in a time warp mm-hmm. that, you know, all these great decisions, all these like big moves within the Nintendo platform had already been like were years done with by the yeah. time the actual Nintendo entertainment system made it to America. That's why it was it felt both new, but also like this really polished, finished product at the right. same time, which has made it such an anomaly, I think, to all of us as kids. Yeah, that uh from a computational standpoint, the and you know the the NES was way out of date. Things had moved along so like quickly that it, it was this this bizarre homunculus of technology that was like uh, made in Japan as this advanced like crazy thing. But by the time but by the time we made it here, it was this like toy. It was this like hokey piece of machinery. Mm. Um, and so like yeah, basically Super Mario Brothers came packed in with the NES. But in Japan, it was kind of the uh, the Famicom swan song. Yeah. Um, they thought it was going to be the final cart game. Yeah. Because um, the Famicom had just added like a floppy disk, sort of like a Sega CD. They, yeah. Uh, they kind of added. The was Famicom like an, disk system, which yes. uh, would have created so much. It's, you know, uh, hundreds and hundreds of kilobytes as opposed to the uh, 40 that they were able to work with on the NROM chip. Yeah. Um so yeah, exact and and um and so yeah, they they really thought Mario Bros was literally like the end of the whole thing. And the uh Famicom itself has like an amazing story like uh it's all this weird backbiting in the Japanese electronics uh businesses where uh they had uh Donkey Kong was a hit. It had a few years had passed. They were doing great with the Game and Watch series through Gunpei Yokoi. And Donkey Kong is a hit in arcades. We should really yeah. specify, not home console. So they got this big arcade hit on their hands, and now and they're still like the home console market. Has Atari fallen out by this point? The as, Japanese market wasn't really affected by the Atari thing. That was an American, pure that was American, purely home an American market. thing. Um, but home consoles never really took off in Japan either. So uh, there was this big reckoning coming in where like the Nintendo and the Sega Master System and the all these PC platforms were all kind of coming out at the same time as 8-bit processors were like more affordable and easier to integrate into into home electronics. Um, the basically uh, Uemura, I believe was the guy's name, the head designer of the Famicom, uh, mm. just knew a guy who worked at Rico, Ryko that who now I think make cheap printers. That's the only thing I can think of. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was like, Hey, what's going on at this factory uh, that I know you work in? And he's like, Oh, we're only at 10% capacity. So if you got anything for us, like, like we'll make it. And they were like, we need a machine that can make Donkey Kong run at home. And that was their sole goal was to make something that could run Donkey Kong. They used an obscure, uh, for Japan, uh, CPU called the, uh, Maz 6502, Whereas a lot of other platforms were working with the Z80 and uh, this just this bizarre thing, uh, which was riddled with bugs, didn't sell well. 
and was kind of just chugging along uh, called the Famicom, uh, you know, was prone to errors and they didn't have like like a real killer app yet. And uh, the production of cartridges, which relied on expensive ROM chips to actually like hold the programming and the graphics on two separate like little plug in sockets was getting like so annoying to program for and so like bled that they were chomping at the bit to get this disk system done. Uh, the disk system in Japan did a bunch of cool shit. You could like buy blank ones and have it like right over its kiosks. Um, games that we know today, like uh, Metroid and uh, The Legend of Zelda, were all like built around the disk system, and it was only like a shit ton of reverse engineering to get them to work on uh, American cartridge games. Uh, what I'm trying to say is, Nintendo was doing okay business, but it wasn't doing great. Uh, the Game & Watch, which was the little pocket things that Gunpei Yokoi were working on, uh, was lagging in sales. And, uh, like, uh, Miyamoto, his uh, assistant, Takashi, Takashi Tezuka, who was uh, the co-designer on Devil World, uh, the programmer, Toshihiko Naka, Naka, Nakago, uh, who's, like, kind of... He... Uh, Worked on Excite Bike, which had that nice horizontal yes. scrolling. I mean, I mean, definitely that scrolling, which yeah. is going to come pl- come into play on Bros for sure. And uh, and Koji Kondo with the music, uh, they had six months to just pound out like a f- a swan song to the to the cartridge format. Uh, they had forty kilobytes to work with, uh, which was the most that at the time a basic uh, cartridge chip could store, and. Uh, Meanwhile, the whole time they were doing this, they were futzing around with the dis- with the Famicom disk system, making the Legend of Zelda. So, like, while this right. is happening, they're also like jumping on board to the Legend of Zelda team. But real quick, uh, we haven't talked about Mario Bros. First, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Real quick, because that's going to set the stage for for this this mm-hmm. part of the tale. Um, so I just want to jump in. Not a ton on it, but it's Miyamoto and it's Gunpei Yokoi mm-hmm. um, working together. Um, uh, as you said, uh, you know, he ends up being the original designer of the Game Boy producer of Metroid and Kid Icarus. He's a top dog, Miyamoto. Yokoi suggests to Miyamoto that, unlike in Donkey Kong, Mario should be able to fall from any height without dying. That was one. Miyamoto was skeptical until he created a prototype with Mario jumping and bouncing around and realized maybe they had something here. Yokoi also suggests that enemies should be able to be hit from below, which was too easy at first until they added the step of having to touch the enemies afterwards to take them out, and this led to designing a turtle enemy um, as a way to convey this mechanic so you can knock him from below get on, and he goes into a shell or, or it gets flipped over. Turtle's the most kickable of all animals. Yes, the most kickable of animals. No one gives a fuck about kicking a turtle, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody hates kicking a frog. Cats, too wily. Dogs, too empathetic. <laughs> Bugs, too small. Turtle. Mm. Oh, my foot yearns. Ah, that's a spicy meatball. My toes are thirsty for the sweet feeling of turtle flesh. All I want to do is pause this podcast right now, go find a gaggle of turtles <laughs> in some weird New York park that doesn't exist. Central just... Park is full of turtles. We it get absolutely yeah. People like buy them in Chinatown, then get sick of them and throw them into the lakes. There, there are tons of turtles in in uh, Central Maybe we park. could put them on tree limbs so that we can bash them with the top of our heads so they flip over onto the. Crowd. Mayor De Blasio will give us a medal. They've been trying to figure out what to do with these fucking turtles for years. <laughs> <laughs> the menace of New York, not muggers no more. It's the New York turtle. Uh, if you're a fan of the show, we're going to have a flash mob in Central Park. <laughs> Bring some steel-toed boots and your nicest suit. Teenage Mutant Ninja, go fuck yourself. Okay, so anyways, 
this uh, also, uh, Mario's job is then changed to a plumber as this particular game that they're working on deals in underground spaces with pipes. The pipes, they don't cite any specific uh, manga. They just say that it's influenced by a lot of manga at the time, which just happened to have a lot of weird sewer scenes with a ton of dilapidated pipes and stuff. I think it was maybe that post-apocalyptic style, imagery style, so there were just all these pipes all over the place. So It was they, also like a, a reason for a black background. Ah, yes, they, and that that was a big thing, right? Because th- that saved space, not the, Oh, that saved it. tons of space. That's why, like, most video games at the time had black backgrounds, and at the same time, that's why it's, uh, one of the things that actually really helped Super Mario stand above the rest by having this beautiful blue background. Um, the importance of look. the blue sky was completely lost on me until we started doing research. I know. I didn't even think about it either, but I also didn't realize. But what like, do you think about it? Like, all the games up until that point. Yeah. It's all black background. And it's kind of a bummer. And yeah. I remember now, like, yeah, it really was like that. And even, I mean, even in Everything Mario. Everything from Pac-Man to Donkey Kong to Mario Brothers And even in Mario, yeah, Invaders. they go underground. They go underground, you know, it becomes black. Um, but anyways, so um, also, um, uh, this is his first appearance from the, f- uh, let me see. Mario's job, yeah, changed to a plumber, like I said. Uh, also, his appearance from the first game, having a hat, overalls, and thick mustache, led to the Italian plumber aesthetic. Is were Italians more specifically connected to being plumbers? Like back they were the- handymen, they were workmen. Yeah, okay. They were, you know, you is ha- that that's not the same today? Is it? Uh, it depends. Okay. Uh, my landlord's Italian, and uh, he comes over and fixes stuff. His name's Vince. <laughs> yeah, I guess maybe he's I got was- like a long ponytail and like. Maybe, maybe like ripped. the gearhead aesthetic, you know what I mean? Mm. Um, for sure. Like being in the shop, being in the auto body shop, for sure. Um, but anyways, uh, yeah, so that's a big part of it as well. So you've got that fun racism in there. Um, and um, He's an everyman. And because of the- A determined everyman. <laughs> and because of the underground networks of pipes, they set it in New York. And they ended up coloring them green because they had a limited palette to work with. And they wanted the colors to really jump at you. So again, it's the restriction leading to these design choices. They were also inspired by a little known game called Joust. Do you want to s- describe Joust? Bird, jump on other bird, kill bird. Kill bird, two-player versus mode. Um, So in order to uh, create that in their game, they needed a second player, so they created the character of Luigi. Um, The uh, other things that were introduced in Mario Brothers that would move on to Super Mario Bros. and other games were the green and red turtles, collectible coins, pow blocks, and fireballs. Um, Even though the fireballs in Mario Bros. would hit you in the future games, he would, of course, have the ability to chuck uh, fireball. That was see that was something that like kind of blew me away is uh, when you look at Mario every, people it's like an old joke like well, well random what's well, so random but every single thing in Super Mario Brothers is just a natural extension of something Nintendo had already been doing like uh, yeah jumping as a va- as an evasive and offensive move is something from Donkey Kong and Mario Brothers uh, uh, the subterranean setting is from Mario Brothers the the bumpable reactive terrain that you can like jump through and bop with your head uh that's from mario brothers uh it's even um stuff like the swimming mechanics the way that mario would bob and swim is taken pretty much directly from uh, iwata's balloon fight Mm. uh and even the uh secret vines like the little beanstalk things that mario would climb that's from donkey kong jr like we think it's like in a rand it's a random assemblage of stuff but in reality it's 
things that this team already knew how to do in the video game with the limitations that they had. They just assembled them all in one experience that was meant to be had at home instead of just like frustratingly pounded against while you waste your parents' money. Yes. Um, So you mentioned a couple of these players. I wanted to round up a couple more facts about them before we get in. I've got some good quotes. Then we're going to start this fucking journey, Mm -hmm. this insanity that is creating this unbelievable masterpiece masterpiece using like a ludicrous amount of restrictions. So you mentioned, uh, so we've got Miyamoto and Gunpei Yokoi. Gunpei Yokoi, by the way, best name ever. Best Mm -hmm. name, right? Um, Takashi Tezuka, he graduated uh, from Osaka University of the Arts. He joins Nintendo in April of 1984. He was a big fan of Lord of the Rings, and he used that as an inspiration for the script of Legend of Zelda and Zelda II, The Adventure of Link. And I love this quote from Tezuka. Very much mirrors the Miyamoto quote that I had earlier. I have never consciously separated casual users and hardcore gamers when I design a game. For the past 20 years, I have always been trying to make games so that anyone, as many people as possible can enjoy them. I cannot help but say that I love my job of making games from the bottom of my heart. And it is that design philosophy that is what is going to make Super Mario Bros. such a big hit. And Mario, the game that people recognize as the franchise that everyone can just jump into and enjoy. It literally is, uh, Mario 3 is one of the only video games my fiance loves. Mm-hmm. Like, loves. You know what I mean? Um, and that is comes from the fact that you can just sit down and just enjoy a Mario Mario game pretty much pretty much any time um as long as it's let's see what's 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 a terrible mar uh some would say maybe um Mario Sunshine that would argue Even that's like fun in its own Mario way. 64 that maybe doesn't hold up as well I mean if you really think about it Mario though, is missing that's pretty bad Mario is missing it wasn't Mario's missing a weird uh, it was not done that by wasn't the a real Nintendo yeah game. yeah that wasn't even a real Nintendo Mario game. teaches typing is rad as hell yeah Mario teaches typing Mario um uh Kama Sutra is super fun where he shows you the different sexual positions mm-hmm. and caves behind his house you know if you check behind the question block on level two you can unleash your fourth dick chakra <laughs> which is like five levels way earlier than you're supposed to. So, um, Tezuka comes in on uh, the game we already mentioned, Devil World. I loved watching footage of this game. So, check it out on YouTube. It's so weird. There's like a devil man up top. It's this weird scrolling Pac-Man game. And actually, the mechanically, it looks kind of fun. You're this little green monster cartoon man, and you're trying to collect Bibles and put them in a Bible shoot so you can... Kill, uh, beat the devil man, and there's just crosses all over it. It's like Neon Genesis Evangelion. <laughs> it style. is a lot like Neon. There's Genesis just crosses Evangelion. everywhere, and halfway through, it's like has a complete uh, d- uh, d- uh, depressive meltdown. It's amazing. The scene where uh, the devil jerks off over his unconscious friend is a little much. <laughs> a little but... much, especially we realize they're all underage. But what are yeah. you gonna do? Um, so, anyways, yes, it was a Pac-Man clone, um, and uh, it didn't ever get released in t- uh, into the U.S. Ex- Except, actually, it did on the Wii Virtual Console years and years and years later. But it is the first game that Tezuka, Tetsuka and uh, Miyamoto end up working together on. And that is very important because from there, they're going to have this partnership going into Super Mario Bros. Now, the other big character, well, actually, there's two more. There's also our musician, which we'll talk about later when we get into the music. But Toshihiko Nakago, the lead programmer on Super Mario Brothers. he previously worked on the Famicom ports of Donkey Kong and Donkey Kong. Kong 
Jr. So we got to take these like great classic games and then make them console games, which was probably very important for him going into Super Mario Bros. And he would also go on to be the main programmer for Mario Brothers 3 um, and a prog- the program director for Mario World and Link to the Past. I mean, he's just around for all these bangers, including being a supervisor on the most recent uh, Mar- uh, uh, Nintendo masterpiece, Breath of the Wild. Mm. Okay, these are our players, and they're ready to play the game. Okay. And they only have five months. <laughs> and they only have five months? How does this, which, by the way, oh, okay, yeah, no, never mind. I was about to say, E.T. had five months. That's not true. E.T. had five and a half weeks. I recently looked it up for some reason. Uh, anyways, so yes, um, we already mentioned these games. So we mentioned Kung Fu Master as well. Kung- uh Kung Fu the video game? Yeah, Kung Fu Master just as an influence as well as Excite Bike and Devil World on this game. Kung mm-hmm. Fu Master was kind of the first big beat-em-up, um, but definitely I think just some of the action, some of the combat and stuff, uh, it was an inspiration to them uh, hey, 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 as well. Hey. Um, are you doing the Goosebumps bark? No, no, no. Like when you punched a guy in Kung Fu, you'd be like, hey, can hey. I Can I do the Goosebumps bark? Yeah. Arf, 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 arf feels powerful right it does feel good um so they wanted an athletic game with a character running and jumping over obstacles miyamoto says we felt strongly about how we were the first to come up with that genre and it was a goal of ours to keep pushing it um and as you mentioned too the the, probably one of the other most mind-blowing parts about this story but i have to reiterate it made at the same time as Legend of <laughs> Zelda. At the same time. They were even trading assets back and forth. That's fucking crazy. Those are two of the most classic video games of all time, and they made them in the same short-ass period of time and it's at the same time. Okay, I'm done. Do you think Spider-Man on PS4 took five months? <laughs> <laughs> it probably took longer, probably. And, right? and is it as good as Super Mario Bros? It's, it's, very, it's, very, it's way better. <laughs> Uh, the, I mean, the platforming is good in both. Um, but yeah, okay. So so they wanted to keep the game simple. Obviously, they had to because of the time length of time, but also because of the the um, the constrictions. But also, the reason why they were on such a strict deadline was they wanted something to come out during the end of your shopping season. Always the holiday rush, right? And they saw the success of the, of Mario Bros. Uh, by the way, Mario Bros. an arcade game. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, did get ported eventually, but right, it was but, the the sales of the Mario Brothers port was so power it was like surprising that uh, it was uh, Tezuka that brought it up to Miyamoto and was like, oh, we should probably make this athletic game a Mario game. Yep. The name for the game came from Mario Bros, the previous game, mixed with the Super Mushroom, which they ended up adding into the game as they went, thus creating Super Mario Bros. Um, the idea that he would go from small to big, and I've got some more thoughts on that in a the second. The big Mario sprite was like incredibly important to Miyamoto. He wanted something like very, he wanted the main character to be big and expressive and like as close to, um, I guess, kind of an animated figure as you could, because a big. Uh, a big influence on what made Donkey Kong kind of stand out was Donkey Kong, this big cartoon-like sprite, which at the time was, you know, as real, not as realistic, but as kind of uh, expressive and cartoonish as 8-bit graphics could be at the time. So the weird thing here, too, is, is that they originally had the level design created around the small Mario, but they planned to make... 
uh, a, uh, the Mario bigger in the final version. And I guess they were going to make just everything bigger. And then they realized, no, we should make it so that he gets big in this world and becomes more powerful. Um, and so that's when they added in the mushroom. Now, why is it a mushroom? We all make the jokes. Oh, it's a magical mushroom. It's a shroom. It's one like drugs. One makes you larger <laughs> and one makes you smaller. All this ass, all, all this stuff on my shirt is LSD. <laughs> Sorry, that's an obscure Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, the movie quote. But it's not that far off because, uh, you know, uh, Alice in Wonderland. It's just the idea of magical mushrooms was a common fairy tale trope. In in Japan specifically, there are tons of Japanese folk tales that have people wandering in the forest and eating magical mushrooms. And that is also what led them to making uh, the name... Uh, for the world, the Mushroom Kingdom. Miyamoto says, since the game's set in a magical kingdom, I made the required power-up an uh, uh, item a mushroom because, you see, people in folktales wandering in a forest eating mushrooms all the time, that in turn led us to calling the in-game world the Magical Kingdom, and the rest of the basic plot setup sprang from there. So the mushroom sort of guided everything, which is kind of crazy, too, thinking, considering that it even added to the title of the actual game. Um... Uh, so yeah, and and also, I mean, you have a lot of. So here we go. We have Japanese folklore. We've got um, manga for the pipes, and then let's talk about King Koopa. King Koopa originally to be an ox, based on an anime called Alakazam the Great, which had a character named the Ox King. Now, Alakazam the Great. This is a 1960 musical anime film based on what every single anime <laughs> film, especially of that time, was based on. A little known. Not I guess I have to read this fucking book. Journey, I mean, it's journey, a, it's an epic novel from ancient China. Journey to the West, but it's like everything's based on Journey to the West. I, is there a good English version of uh, it? There was that opera by the Gorillas team. Uh, there's <laughs> yes. Dragon Ball Z. There's Dragon Ball. Dude, it's every every fucking thing we cover is Journey to the West <laughs> inspired. It's insane. I mean, the idea of magic powers changing shape. Uh, sprouting beanstalk vines, like uh, clouds, being able to walk upon clouds and traverse upon clouds. These are, it's a mishmash of Journey to the West and uh, European fairy tales. And it's all just like mishmushed together in such a way that it became unrecognizable and pretty much completely new. Because again, children were picking this up for the first time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Hello there, you beautiful nerds. It's me, your whimsical wizard, Jake, here once again to talk about this week's sponsor, Keeps. Have you been spending too much time worried about your hairline? It's only natural. A majority of men eventually have to deal with thinning hair in their lifetime. But the world is stressful enough, right? I mean, even without you obsessingly counting all the follicles on your pillowcase every morning. Luckily, there's proven safe treatments available to you right now, approved by the FDA, and you can get them way easier and for way cheaper than you ever imagined. If you take five minutes now and spend about a dollar a day, you can take control of your head and everything else involved with it with Keeps. It's simple. Sign up is quick and completely online. You answer a couple of questions and take a few photos, and then a real licensed doctor reviews the information and will recommend a personal treatment plan for you. I literally did it in a moving taxi cab with my phone, and the whole process was effortless. Keeps can then send you the only two FDA-approved hair loss products out there. There's no need to take an embarrassing trip to the pharmacy, and there's no crazy retail markups. Even if you're familiar with these treatments, you'll be shocked at how easy Keeps makes this whole process, all for as little as 10 to 35 a month. But here's the real kicker. If you sign up right now 
If you are listening to the words that I am blasting into your ear holes from my kitchen table, we're going to offer you a month of treatment for free. That's right, free, as in zero dollars. All you have to do is go to keeps.com slash wizard. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash wizard. Spend less time worrying about it when you can do something right now by going to keeps.com slash wizard for your first month of treatment for free. Keeps. Hair today, hair tomorrow. So, and Alexander the Great specifically was about a pompous monkey king that must learn humility on a long pilgrimage, and he it was one of the first anime films actually to be released in the U.S., which I did not know. That's kind of interesting. Uh, I feel like I'm like, have we talked about Alakazam the Great before? No, no. Uh, there was it's uh, it was, although it's interesting because the um, the it was it used Osamu Tezuka, the godfather of mangas, yes, uh, art yes. style creator of Astro Boy. But apparently, it was like barely around for the. Yeah, process. it was it was like a cheap cash in on his brand, basically. But Miyamoto's personal art style is very much influenced by Tezuka, so it's only natural that this larger than life, big budget animated movie would have left an impression on him. And um, it also so uh, uh, donkey or no 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 King Koopa translates in Japanese to Great Demon King Koopa Daimyo Daimyo so uh, uh, yeah the the Japanese word for that character does translates into that phrase and essentially uh, and partly was also the name for a Korean soup dish now this is when we get into our food stuff there's so much food stuff oh gookbap yeah what Korean gookbap yeah is that the soup. Yeah, it's a soup uh, poured over uh, rice. Hot, hot soup, usually with a beef base poured over rice. Is have you had it before? Bop. Have you hmm? had it? Hmm? Have you enjoyed it? Uh, I don't. Whenever I go out for Korean, I usually just go for the barbecue because that stuff is it's uh, good. You, good. I mean, I'll, uh, you just never like just some marinated chicken just over some hot, hot, hot fire. Mm. <laughs> um, put so, some samjang on top of that. So yeah, I guess Tezuka saw Miyamoto's design and commented that it looked more like a turtle. So the two of them worked on a redesign that got them to the OG Koopa we know today. The sort of like it's like a, so it's a combination in a weird way between like it has like the horns that the ox had, but then also um, uh, tr- d- just turned into this weird turtle. Like it's such a unique, weird. It's it's kind of a dragon. Well, Japanese mythology, I mean, Eastern mythology is full of these hybrid animals. Dragons ah. themselves, like Asian dragons, are like weird stag, lion, snake things. Like, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. so the fact that he's just this hodgepodge, although the uh, the way he looks in the game with that like crazy ass gnarled mouth is way more similar to like Buddhist and like uh, uh, Hindu demons than anything else. It's like, yeah. Right, right. Um. So there was also going to be a mode in which Mario and Luigi got into a rocket ship and fired enemies while flying around, which was completely abandoned. But the sky-based bonus stages are leftovers from this attempt that they made. The original uh, in there's documents that show the original controller layout, the original Nintendo controller, by the way, eight buttons because it's an eight-bit system and only one value could be assigned at a time. Ah, so that way the like basically how you're holding a controller at any given second can be expressed by an eight-bit uh, an eight-bit code. Um, the, uh, <laughs> the, so in the original documents, uh, jump was going to be the up on the direction pad Whoa. and the a button was going to be exclusively for shooting, What shooting or kicking the turtle shells. Interesting. But it was as things got a little more streamlined, they realized that the a button was, should be better used with jumping the actual core mechanic of the game. There were also like weird, design choices that were created out of just 
straight up programming glitches. I think one of the biggest ones is blocks having multiple coins was a glitch, and they ended up uh, sticking to that. And a lot of little things like that where, again, it was like they have a 256 kilobyte cartridge to work with. Kill a bit. Kill a bit, sorry. Bit, less than a byte, right? So divide that by eight. Um, and so they had to come up with a lot of weird tricks and workarounds. Uh, clouds and bushes in the backgrounds used the same sprite but were recolored. Sound effects were recycled. That's why you have the same sound when Mario is hit as you have when he's going through pipes, mm-hmm. little things like that. Um, uh, you get the same sound when he jumps on an enemy as you do when he swims. Uh, they also, one of the more interesting things that I found from the uh, I Am Error book uh, was the way that they would sort of make uh, mirror images of enemies and and certain things so that they could just take up less space with those created things. Nakago said, even with mushrooms and flowers, we'd be working to limit the bites we u- used. So we draw half of the object, then flip it around to display it. That's true of the stars too. They're symmetrical. There was an- the advantage that you could get an object that was double the size using only half the bites. Which is wild. If it was programmed traditionally, uh, the 40 kilobyte NROM uh, chip uh, on the cartridge could only hold about 41 screens of like level information. Just yes. single static screens. Not 32 entire length full scrolling levels. Mm-hmm. And so on top of the enemies and the secrets and the warps and all this other stuff happening. So it took so much crunching to just squeeze every little bit out of it while making all those squeezes seem as seamless as possible. And all of this is orchestrated. I know we talked- Metatiles. The word was metatiles. Metatiles happening a lot. Finding incredible workarounds to create way larger worlds than they had any right to be creating. And that is what gave you the specific look and feel and sound that- um, that Mario had. Uh, so with the bank of very simple com- like components, eight by eight components, uh, you could create meta tiles that uh, the addresses and the com- the processor, it would take less instructions and less programming, less physical space on the cartridge to just say, all right, put this big chunk here, put this big chunk here, put this big chunk here. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that saved so much space and allowed the uh, levels to stream in without like making everything grind to a halt. And this is all happening, you have to realize, like I know we talked about this historic team, right? But also you have to realize this is literally one of the first games in the video game industry to have this kind of specialization. The, the, this idea that me, there's one guy, Miyamoto, uh, managing a team of people, having a specific artistic vision, working with these seven people to make sure it, it comes to fruition. Um, you know, usually before this, it was like one person, maybe a couple people working on a game. There was never this level of cooperation, communication, and execution. Like, this was very specific to Super Mario Brothers. It's This is where uh, uh, Nakago should get a lot more credit, because yeah, yeah. it takes one thing to have, like, uh, Miyamoto and Tezuka to, like, write down on a piece of paper, um, or, you know, uh, famously, these levels were laid out on graph paper, because they knew how big the tile sizes they were allowed to work with were. Uh, to kind of just have it write down on paper and then to have someone actually go in and type in 6502 assembly language. Mm-hmm. Not even like, you know, stuff like uh, everything from Java to Python to C++. You, 
even basic, even basic has like written instructions that makes things a little bit more intuitive. Right. Whereas, you know, Nakago is like basically writing pure gibberish and like had to see through the matrix code he to should, know. He should be as much of like a household name as like John Carmack is to gaming nerds. You know what I mean? I mean, like, Carmack, you know, he's pretty, he made the quake too. <laughs> I know he made the Quake 2. We all know he made the Quake 2, all right? But who, uh, come on. Where would Quake be without Super Mario Bros, period? All right? Well, this is this is the weird thing is the the amount of, uh, of specialization and the amount of efficient uh, use of resources that they did to cram all this into the basic cartridge created such a fever and such an appetite for these kind of games that... Uh, it turns out the cartridge evolved and they started adding memory mappers and extra RAM and all these coprocessors yeah. uh, to ele- to kind of one up because the only way to one up Mario was to physically change the hardware. Yeah. Um, which was, is unbelievable. Was to make the game basically half the computer. Like to every game was half the computer needed to run the game. Uh, so let's talk about how a World One One of Mario is studied by uh, gaming professionals and studied by colleges uh, around the country as I'll, being. I'll never forget. The you start up the tutorial. game, you hit start, and then Princess Peach chimes in over the radio. Mario, it's me, Princess Peach. Move forward using the right arrow on your direction <laughs> pad. And then, like, you walk a little bit, and then she's like, bling, bling, Mario, watch out. There's a Goomba. He'll kill you if he touches you. Use the A button to jump over him. Can we please? Okay, I think you just found a good dorkly premise, by the way. Can you please just add bad tutorials over VO over um, early video games? Which, obviously, Jake is bringing this up because they had to do wordless tutorials. There was no dialogue or anything like that. So they had to convey things by just making you play through things in a certain way to... Uh, uh, subconsciously teach you how to play the game. And not only teach you how to play the game, but it's you have to keep in mind, this is a genre of game that had never existed before. Exactly. I mean, there were some types of versions of it a little bit, like Moon Patrol, things like Moon that. Moon Patrol was more of like a horizontal shooter, Magic right. Mountain. A uh, little, yeah, they're not quite this level of like specifically a plat. I mean, this is the game that created the term the platformer, you know, as as a genre. But there were things like similar-ish to it. But yeah, exactly. This was still pretty fucking new to the world. Um, Mario, some of those blocks are different. I wonder if jumping underneath them will unveil a power-up of some kind. <laughs> so here are the series Mario, of- watch out. That's another mushroom. But don't worry. It's a good mushroom. Collect it and become Super Mario. You should go in that cave. There's a sword in the cave. (laughs) Can I do Zelda? You'll do Mario. We're going to make this amazing. There might be several dungeons in the area. Go north to find the first one. I mean, well, (laughs) now that you say that, like, I'm thinking of games like Zelda 2 and Castlevania 2. We're like, I would fucking love a radio. Yeah, it would have been amazing to have a radio in. That way I don't have to flip through page after page of Nintendo Power. Exactly. Trying to find out how to get the fucking red crystal. But let's pick apart this real quick. Let's just pick apart this World 1-1 because it is fascinating to go through how they were able to communicate this so brilliantly to the point where people literally study it. That and, like... 
you know, Super Metroid are like mm-hmm. games that are just studied as like, wow, wordless, perfect wordless communication of game mechanics. So, step one, you've got a slow moving Goomba. Now, they ended up go designing a, uh, the Goomba as a way to essentially um, make a simpler enemy for the player on the onset so that uh, they could eventually get to the Koopa Troopa, which is a little bit more complex because you have to bounce on them twice, you can pick them up, all that kind of stuff, right? So they they start with a, a Goomba just to, to teach you basic combat. Um, it's very slow moving. If you die to it, you're just going to start right back there at the beginning, so it's not really that big of a deal. And that's their first little combat tutorial. Jump on that slow moving Goomba. Step two, there's a coin block. Miyamoto says this coin block quote-unquote will make the player happy and want to repeat the action so after hitting the coin block they come to the next block and a mushroom comes out of it and they purposely made this mushroom difficult to avoid catching like so that you would essentially even if you tried to avoid it you would still probably get hit by it quote-unquote and realize that oh this isn't a bad thing this is a power-up this is something i can use um Then after that, you have four vertical pipes, each of a different height, and this is going to teach the player that holding the jump button down for different lengths of time will affect the jump height to get over each pipe, and the quote-unquote holes in between uh, are not ones that could make the player die. You can, you, you, you know, you'll live, there's solid ground in between, so you're good to go. This is just to teach you jumping. One of those pipes, of course, is a warp that will allow the player to underground and to skip a large part of the level. And that is really just there more so for players who've done this before to immediately just jump past this le- this tutorial level and get straight to the end. Also, there's a secret one-up block that is there for repeat players to find. So they just created this like perfect step-by-step how to uh, onboard onto this game. I mean, of course, it's very simple. You know, it's not like rocket science. This game, it is running and jumping, and that's you know. But, but they still. took the time to make sure that that running and jumping felt good. They made sure mm-hmm. that even if you've played this game a million times before, when you get that first fire flower and beep beep, those like goombas, you feel good. Well, also too, you have to realize with the running and jumping, and this uh, was explored a little bit and explained in a way I hadn't really thought about it before in that I am error book. Um, running and jumping like never felt like this before. It felt like the player had way more control and it felt like the runner was more realistically running and jumping. Like in other games, if you stopped, he would like full stop mm-hmm. immediately. But Mario, he kind of slides a little bit like somebody would if they were to stop running. You know, it takes him a while to pick up some momentum. Also, they could have added a new enemy type. They could have done so much with the memory that it took to add those extra frames of like slippy, slidey, leany animation. Uh-huh. But it was that important to the feel of the game that Mario be that physical. And like all this extra control in the air. And I even remember having so many experiences Mario Mario being like, I can't pull this off, can I? <laughs> like, I don't think I can jump and like fit myself into this little slot here or, or make this jump or whatever. And then I would. And it would be so awesome. It would be like so much of that trial and error being like, they didn't build this into the game, did they? And then they did, you know? And, and also just people being like, you know, with with all the secrets. And the secrets really are such, you know, in Mario World, it's like they hit, you know, they, they hit it into overdrive with the secrets. I mean, I think my favorite thing about Mario World is just the incredible depth to the secret worlds that you can find in that game. Um, and in Mario... It, Mario, Mario Odyssey Bros. was is just about going into weird places and trying to find weird nooks and crannies. Right. And, like, watching as the game keeps unfurling more stuff. It's, yeah. And that is another element 
element that is making Mario Bros. so replayable, and the replayableness is what makes it the perfect console game to blow the doors off of the console game market. There's just so many little things uh, that led it to being that, you know? Um, so it's, when, it's, it's the definitive point where, like, the home game comes into its own outside of the the boundaries of just arcade. Yes, yeah, because it's got to be replayable in a certain way. You talk about, people joke around about, you know, the Sega Genesis game Strider because Strider was a port from the arcade and it was a game that it, I feel bad if you didn't rent it from Blockbuster because if you paid full price for that game, which what, at the time were Sega games like 60 bucks like they are, like games are today, 40 to 60 bucks. In old timey money. In old timey little kid money, mm-hmm. um, if you took that game home, you were going to beat it in an hour. You know, arcade games did not translate well to console in many, many cases. You know, you have like your Pac Mans and stuff like that, but for the most part, games that you would sink quarters into in the arcade, not nearly as fun at home. And so that trans- transition was huge, and Mario just was like the perfect combination of ingredients. Shout outs to the Minus World, really quick, too, um, because people, I hope, on the forums would be like, why'd you talk about the Minus World? You know what I mean? Um, so the Minus World, this unbeatable glitch level in the original release, it is accessed by exploiting a bug that allows Mario to pass through bricks by the secret warp zone pipes, and um, the map is identical to worlds 202 or 22 and uh, 72, but at the end, Mario goes through a warp pipe and is sent back to the beginning of the level to repeat it forever and uh, uh, relentlessly. At a certain point, people were, in Japan at least, were trying to breathlessly cata- like catalog all these secret levels that had mm-hmm. been put into the game. But it's really not. It's, uh, you know, you fuck up the, the you interrupt the how the game loads uh, because the way that uh, warp zones and uh, kind of side areas are loaded. It's basically there's like a little shunt of memory where like little secret pipe zones with a bunch of coins or warp zones or all these little side areas uh, are loaded into and if you can like trick the game into not loading the extra area but still trigger the warp to the area uh the game freaks out and just dumps you in like a mishmash of whatever like uh, bits of data it can find uh you can fuck with it even further by like pulling out the cartridge and putting in a new cartridge so there was like tons of ways to to kind of fuck with the game and get a quote unquote secret minus world, but it really was just code salad. It's it's it, but it adds to that endless amount of mystery surrounding this game that I other mean, games in the future, the like Mortal Kombat, would capitalize on years later. You know, like create an endless amount of talk and mystery around something, and it'll just stay alive for years. If they if they took the time to add um, a secret one up or. A uh, like and a bean sprout that took you to a warp zone. Of course, they had three hundred and seventy-eight extra levels hidden in the game. <laughs> uh, so let's talk a little bit about Koji Kondo and the music for Super Mario Bros. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, uh, so Koji Kondo, I talked about this, I believe, in probably the Zelda episode, but I'm going to recap it really quick here. He'd been playing music since five years old on the electric organ. He played in a jazz and rock cover band where he honed his skills, and he went to Osaka University of the Arts during his final year answered a recruitment letter from Nintendo and got the job in 1984 right out of the gate. His first game music was Punch-Out, and he also did Devil World and Kung Fu before Super Mario Bros. He 
cons- uh, he composed the six-track soundtra- uh, soundtrack using only a small keyboard. He'd write a piece, and then he'd send it to the team, and they'd put it into the game, and he'd have to scrap it if it didn't time up to Mario's jumps, or it just was did not harmonize with the sound effects or anything like that. Uh, Miyamoto gave him a large creative license, and I think that's very important uh, it's for his side of the story. Uh, Miyamoto, all he did was share some records and music stores, uh, uh, scores rather, with Kondo, but otherwise he gave him total creative freedom. And uh, so the main theme was composed with a Latin rhythm in mind, which makes sense if you if you listen to it like that. Kondo's two specific goals for his music, as he says, and I quote, to convey an unambiguous sonic image of the game world and to enhance the emotional and physical experience of the game. Um, unlike other music makers at the time, Kondo was a part of the team from the very beginning. And there's another comment on like how important it was, this evolution of specialization of a team having a full team working on the game all together, all at once, with one person at the top giving his uh, his his uh, image for the game, his vision for the game, how important that was. And that was very rare for the music guy. Usually, the game gets made, then they send it out to some guy, um, and that they make the music and that's it. At around this era, there wasn't even like a music guy. It was usually the programmers. Mm. Uh, Iwata and Nakago shared like anecdotes about how early on in the Famicom's run, like they, it was up to them to just like throw in some music just to like fill the silences during the opening screen, which is why like I feel like a lot in early PC and uh, like old timey like Atari kind of games. Like the music is usually just like na 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 like it's just whatever just whatever yeah and uh, Kondo though was way more trying trying to be way more involved. He said that his intention was to heighten. Uh, I'm sorry. He said his intention was to heighten the feeling of how the game controls. And he actually had a slower version of the song, the main theme, uh, when he do, got in. Do, do. Yeah, right? Like a jazzy, like a sexy jet. He he uh he he got an earlier prototype that was slower and he ended up actually having to speed it up and make it peppier for the later versions of the game. And that's why you really get that and it does. It has that jumpy feeling. Like it makes you want to kind of run and jump and leap and see you and know, run towards the horizon. And, yeah, exactly. Like in such a God, fun I wanna it's find, such a good song. Do you think you can find a copy of like the fuck jam version of this? I would love the fuck jam version. Um, so anyways, and you just gave me a really funny thought and that would be to say like, Hey baby, do you want to put on some mood music and then put on <laughs> Super Mario Bros? Did it, did, when you're about to come, like you just hear, did it, did it, did it, did it, did it, did it, and then the music speeds up. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, and that was I'm a great, I'm sorry friends and family that listen to this show. By the way, also to Kondo's credit, that was kind of a new idea and uh, was speeding up the music when the time started running out. That was actually a totally uh, a new concept that Kondo put in for uh, for um, Super Mario Bros. So uh, the original NES version sold 40.24 million copies upon release, 29 million of which were in the U.S., essentially reviving the console market. See, it was- it's more impressive that the game sold... Uh- some what was that like 15 million 20 million copies in japan without it being packed into the game yeah that's like a g- or into the console yeah yeah, yeah. Th- if you think about that now uh major release in a, in an era where people have uh infinite abilities to buy games the gaming market is global huge worldwide they would be overjoyed with like 15 million 20 copies sold 
of a game. That's a global blockbuster. And Super Mario Brothers sold that many in a single country, not counting the pack-in copies that were sold in America. It's fucking wild. That's nuts. Nuts. And on top of that, we've talked about this several times before, about how basically every major player in video in the Japanese video game scene had like a collective awakening playing this game. Oh yeah. Everyone from uh Miyazaki and Dark Souls to Hideo Kojima all point to Super Mario Brothers as this holy fucking shit moment that kind of exploded the possibilities. Like I don't even think we gave done. enough credit to like the way it scrolls was the way the just the way it lo- like they'd done that before with like a slow moving background and like a faster moving foreground things like stuff like that but it never felt looked so good. It never felt so good just the way even just it moved from left to right like the 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 four in the back I've I've ne- I I've tried to like put this into a theory but there's something about movement in video games specifically action oh, games yeah. where um the feeling of running the feeling of movement is elusive and um if you're not an actual distance runner it's kind of a pain in the ass <laughs> and from Basically, from Mario onwards, one of the core appeals of video games is the feeling of the wind in your hair, the feeling of movement, of action, of kind of uh, having your own body be supplanted by your on-screen avatar through your physical hands. And um, and the reason why video games is such a powerful medium is because it is transcendent. You do escape your body and enter the the your your character in a way I, again this is very psychotropy whatever but mario brothers was quite possibly the first time that pure unbridled movement was like fully realized in the game mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that exhilaration so here's the combination for success and i have to big shout outs for i am error because it really kind of brought it all together for me mm-hmm. it really tied the room together this is the rug east meets west aesthetic mm-hmm uh, with no distinct cultural touchstones to be very inclusive for all audiences. Um, and man, that bright blue background, just to bring you in aesthetic-wise, just to, just to brighten your day. Uh, that's one. A stronger, more realistic player control than ever before, like we mentioned. Just having that, having a character finally feel like actually like the closest to what running really is, like and stopping motions really are up to this point. Um, secrets galore for the player to uncover upon repeat playthroughs and um, to share with your friends to talk about and to when talk you're not about, playing and one of the biggest ones that I didn't learn until way later in life a lot of people are like pissed they never knew this the, the this, continue the continue the saving I, I of feel, the game I knew it what is it again what do you have to push again up an A up an A would, would allow you to start from the world you died in yeah is that what it was that's un- aggravating <laughs> I was so mad when I heard about that. I knew that. I don't know who told me that as a kid, but I want to thank him. Was it in the booklet? I don't know. Is the, well, I'd that's the booklet that explained that uh, all the blocks and bricks that you were destroying were uh, former citizens yes. of the kingdom that yes. you just murdered. They were turned into by uh, evil Bowser. Um, so this this giving lending itself to repeat, constant repeat playthroughs and word of mouth stuff, that's what made it perfect for specifically the console. And it is these three things, I think, are at the core of why this game. Wait, just what were the three so, things again? Uh, East meets West aesthetic, just the aesthetic in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, stronger, more realistic player control and all those secrets. Mm-hmm. I, I, I like that, you know, all, all together. It's like feel, look and replayability mm-hmm. right these are the three at its core what make those three things succeed in that way to make it like this perfect 
thing to blow, like I said, blow the doors off the console market um, at this point. And uh, so anyways, yeah, and, and just trying to think back as a kid, I mean, I don't even know if we even talked about the our personal experience with, I couldn't tell you the first time I put my hands on a, on a Nintendo console and played Mario Bros., but I just remember like instantly loving the aesthetic, instantly it being one of those things almost like you know when you read like talking about lord of the rings when you when you read something like that and you're like wow this world is just so like here and it's so it's its own thing that seems like it always existed and it's so unique to itself that's kind of what the mushroom kingdom felt to me the goombas and the the turtle the koopa troopas and and all of it it just felt like such a realized unique all into itself world that was super fun to play around in and pass the controller around on. So we'll wrap things up here with a, a brief little run through of the uh, Super Mario Bros. World Record uh, attempts. And I love that you like kind of fell in love with this uh, during the research. Well, it just it clicked when it turns out as of this recording, it broke a week ago. Yes, I I know. I I actually stopped. Uh, I, or I really rather I started my Twitch stream that day with like, all right, everybody, I'm just going to put on the world record and we're going to watch this thing because this is crazy that this just happened. Because for me, it was maybe several months ago. It wasn't even that long ago, but Summoning Salt is the name of the YouTuber. He put together a bunch of different world record progression videos, but the Super Mario Bros. one was the first one I watched and got me really into them. I'd always loved speed runs before and speed running. But he does an amazing job of piecing together the history of speedruns, which is something that I had never really gotten a good resource, a good access to. Especially because, like, uh, now we live in a post-Awesome Games Done Quick world where, yeah. like, there's a, th- a vibrant community of uh, people that, like, meet up all the time and, like, keep up with each other. And uh, people on Twitch that get thousands of followers. And, you know, there's kind of an industry. But this was just, like... NES ROMs were popular. They could finally run on home computers and you could record your your playthroughs. And like these people that were either revisiting games from their childhood or just picking up these like old games for free because they just had an internet connection. Yeah. Just like all of a sudden, just like beasting through this game as quickly as possible. Like, uh, yeah, like I said, my my memory, I actually have a weird speedrun memory of my next door neighbor, Casey. He was older than me. He was like more friends with my brother, but uh, he was like, he knew I was really into video games. They actually are the ones that lent me their Nintendo, so I got to play oh, that's through them. Okay. Legend of Zelda like all the way through for the first time. Like a huge, huge part in my love for video games. But uh, he had me come over and time him using like an actual stopwatch while he beat Mario Two as fast as he could because he was trying to get a PB. Which at the time there was no PB, there was no like word for it. I was just like, "What are you talking about?" A personal best, exactly. I was like, "What is this crazy asshole doing?" But I did it, and it was fascinating. Like he he. He beat it like in 15 minutes or something, and it was like insane. Um, so, anyways, uh, let's talk about it here. You've got um, first of all, I don't know how to explain this 21 frame thing. Do you know how to explain the 21 frame thing? Um, I know they refer to it as like a bus stop. Like, there, you're sort of within 21 frames. You're not going to get a speed up on the level. I guess is what it uh, is. There's a part of you know a part of uh, of. Uh, Speedrunning is to minimize the things that are out of your control because it's supposed to be a show of skill. Yeah. And no matter what you do within the original Mario game, uh, because, again, this is a low-level processor, you know, Mario's doing all these things to save precious clo- like you know cycles on, their pro- on the processor and on the graphics chip. Um, 
the game doesn't check whether the level it should load the next level except once every 21 frames. Mm. So no matter what you do, you're always going to suffer a weird variety of like millisecond, subsecond penalties throughout a playthrough that there is just no way around. And for speedruns, that really sucks because that really constricts the record holding. Mm-hmm. And so for a while there, it was set at five minutes and 10 seconds by a player named uh, Scott Kessler in 2004. And for a very long time, uh, for years and years, that was known to just be the and that is time. a and that is a run you go through one one you go through one two get to the warp zone go to level five or level four yeah level four, four mm-hmm. uh, go to the warp zone level four two get to the eighth world and then you go through eight one eight two and Bowser's final castle that's it and that that is and that's again five minutes I mean is what we're talking about here we're talking about five minutes and ten seconds then this dude comes out of nowhere Trevor Seguin. And uh, hits the world record for five minutes and six seconds. Bring it down by four minutes. And is this the one that makes it big on YouTube and kind of like kind of it's like goes viral? Because, again, this is a game, like you said, 50 million people know this even not just this game, this specific run to the end. Like the back of their hand. This is like a neighborhood we all grew up in. Yeah. We all know every single pixel of this run because a it's only like that's okay. So here's the thing. Even. A person that just owned Mario Brothers and is pretty good at it could get through this this exact run in like six and a half minutes. Right, right. Like the gap between world level pro and person who just played the game wasn't that far. It's these people are fighting over like microseconds and trying to optimize so thoroughly. So Kessler comes back. He comes back with a five minute and five second run, which is considered to be a perfect run by that point in time. Okay. But then new glitches are discovered by a specific, specifically by a guy named Andrew G, this 17 year old. He figures out that you can wall jump off of a pipe in 8 4. Um, essentially, it's like, it seems like you're just hitting the wall of a pipe, but there's some weird angle you can hit it at where you're allowed to kind of get an extra jump off of it to jump up and, and take away a ton of time. There's also a thing called a wrong warp. Um, and a wrong warp is essentially you have to go forward a certain amount of frames and then you can go back to the uh, jump into the pipe and it'll skip uh, an animation. And skipping animations, finding glitches to skip animations were like a huge deal, uh, are, are always a huge deal in uh, speed runs. In uh, the two stuff like uh, the, the little like two second cutscene when Mario climbs up the beanstalk to get to the second warp zone. Or stuff like waiting for the flag to drop all the way when you hit the end of a level. Right. Skipping that will shape in like two to three seconds off of an individual level, which is huge, again, in this highly precise, highly focused uh, genre of run. We should also mention glitches coming to play in a, as a whole. Were, they were not widely accepted before because Galaxy Games was Twin like... Twin Galaxies. Twin Galaxies, I'm which sorry. Which famous from uh, King of Kong. Yes, King of Kong um, and all sorts of... yeah. There's, it turns out they were corrupt as fuck yes. and one of the referees was a pedophile. It was Whoops. horrible. Whoops, oh well. Uh, but he was... Uh, yeah, yeah. So originally they didn't allow glitches in the game Games, they, those weren't accepted, but that, that became revised later on within the community. So now glitches are free game, and that's why these records are coming way down. So he 
he gets a five minute flat world record, which he then later turns it into a five minute, four minute rather, and 59 second world record. One year later, they find new shortcuts, namely where to jump on the flagpole. If you jump higher up in the flagpole, you get a slightly faster animation jumping off the block, and it just shaves a little bit of time. It can shave just just enough frames off to to, uh, to get you into a 21 frame section before. Um, you also uh, uh, you have the bullet bill glitch. Now this is a crazy ass glitch. This is in World Eight. Eight uh, uh, two. And yeah, you have to like perfectly time a bullet bill to shoot out of the rocket in a certain way, which wouldn't even be, they couldn't even figure out until way later how to manipulate it to do it perfect. It was kind of it a random. To, you would play, you would play through the entire run. And if that bullet bill, before they figured out the exact timing on how to make sure. Which essentially was not to touch a turtle. Not yep. to touch a Koopa Troopa the entire uh, board. And if you got to it after that, it would, like, work. It's insane. Like, <laughs> so, there's an, so there's an entire era of this speedrun community where people would be, like, doing perfect games, nailing the 4-2 glitches, doing all this stuff. And then just that bullet bill just never showed up when you needed it to. So they just had to restart immediately. Yep. So, um, But if you jumped on the bullet bill as it passed through the block in the flagpole and you landed on it, at just the right set, like micro pixel, you would skip the entire flag drop animation completely and you would just shut you to the next world. So then there's this guy named Blubbler that comes out with a four minute 57 record getting a consistent bullet bill glitch and that kind of changes everything. Then there's another speedrunner, Darbian. He enters the fray getting the world record with the bullet bill glitch, but not a fast 4-2. They call it a fast 4-2 because you have to get that uh, wrong warp pipe glitch and all this stuff in world 4-2. And then you've got the three dudes going at it hard which is so exciting when when multiple people are like chasing a world record day by day like trying to be the the next one to get it which so- one's the hungry box and which one's the leffen i don't <laughs> so there's darby and andrew g and another guy another uh uh twitch dude or whatever named cosmid uh cosmic d12 mm-hmm. um cosmic d12 remember that one they're all going after it at the same time. Andrew G does both fast forward two and a bullet bill glitch, but he fails to get the record because he fucks up in World Eight because that would happen all the time too. World Eight's hard as shit. Yeah. There's so many random things that happen. Namely, like just, Hammer Bros. Hammer Bros. Yeah. are completely a, are a fucker. And the final Bowser, like you, you watch it runs die at the very final moment with Bowser because if you don't jump or run under him correctly, and you're fucked. Um. So Andrew G. Uh, yeah, he, uh, he gets both the 4-2 and the bullet bill glitch, doesn't get the record. Darbian gets it at 4 minutes, 47 seconds, point forty two millis. Now we're like down to milliseconds, mm. by the way. Um, they find a new glitch. There are three different instances of clipping into flagpoles aside from the bullet bill glitch. Uh, and so th- that like kind of changes everything. Darbian gets a 4 minute, 56 second run with this edition in January of 2017, by the way. This is like literally like happening within the past, you know, couple years. We should also state that uh, the glitches that we're talking about, people had like become aware of them. And it was just assumed that you could not even it was not even possible for human hands to be precise enough to activate them because they were just discovered through the tool assisted speedrun community so actually for like three fucking weeks ago or whatever no no, no i guess over a month now because it was in september september of 2018 cosmic c uh cosmic d12 gets the world record at um with a four minute 55 second 
uh, run. He gets the three flagpole clips. He gets the bullet bill glitch. He gets a fast four two, and he gets the eight two wrong warp. And literally, like he never made an attempt. Okay, so to explain this, like the I think it's the world one two flag glitch. He never actually pulled off before until this specific run, and then just happened to do everything else perfectly on his first try after getting that glitch which is unbelievable he's even joking about it in the video watch the video it is so much fun to watch yeah, because it's always fun to watch a world record because nobody they, they don't know at the beginning of the run that it's gonna be a world record yeah. the 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 moments in a in a speed run especially a game like super mario where you know these are people hanging basically hanging out it's yeah. just a chat room. They've been playing for hours too, probably. Watching the same five minutes of gameplay over and over again. Yeah. They're just chilling. Yeah. Um you might as well watch someone like play through like play scratch off lottery games and then someone gets a million dollar jack. <laughs> That's the feeling because as people like as each glitch successfully goes off, the Twitch chat just starts going like Oh shit! Wait, is this what? What's wait? Right. And then, like, by the time he hits like eight four, people were like, "Hey YouTube, hey, hey, yeah. s summoning salt! I'm in your video." <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's pretty, it's pretty spectacular. So go check that out. Just look up uh, Super Mario Bros. World Record. It'll be the first thing that pops up on YouTube. It's so much fun to watch, and it's only four minutes and fifty five seconds of your time. Yeah. Um, it's it's just something really special, and this and, game is really special. And people will be whittling it. People will be figuring out how to get to four fifty four. Yeah, which is like it's incredible. never going to stop. If they find, I mean, they can still find new glitches today. Obviously, it's this is progressing at, a, at an insane rate over the past few years, mm -hmm. uh, which is incredible because this when did Mario came come out eighty fucking I don't even know what year it came eighty three. No, eighty three. I think is the Famicom eighty five. Either either way, it, and again because of the Japan America old. time warp, I, my brain doesn't even work. So, anyways, that's our episode on Super Mario Bros. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, if you'd like to uh, support us further, go to patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. $5 a month for bonus episodes. And we're trying to really increase the 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 uh, energy we put into those, the length of time we put into those. So, please check it out. Also, um, rate and review us on iTunes always helps. You can follow me on twitch.tv forward slash holdenatorsho. You can follow me on Twitter at bestjakeyoung. Um... And check out dropout.tv. It's a thing we do at College Humor. Uh, I, I, the show I'm on, uh, Cartoon Hell, is a weekly animated uh, adventure in the underworld. I play a very angry demon. Um, so, you know, give that a whirl. Uh, and definitely, please leave an iTunes review. Hell yeah. Thank you so much, guys. Take care. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers. 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. 
NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25.